We'll be looking at 1 Kings chapter 17, so do feel, feel free. In fact, I would encourage you to follow along in your Bibles as you have them. And if you've got an extra finger, perhaps go ahead and tag Luke chapter 4. I will reference that in the sermon. About 800 years ago, in 1242 A.D., King James I of Aragon, Spain, issued an edict. And it required that all of the non-Christians in his kingdom, predominantly his Jewish subjects, attend conversionist sermons. Now this move was the result of some pressure that the king had received from Dominican and Franciscan friars, who were also missionaries. Those friars knew what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28 at the end. He says, take my gospel to all the nations. Introduce me to all peoples. These friars had seemingly good and biblical intentions. Even so, when it came to the religious outsiders in the neighborhood of Spain at that time, they adopted a somewhat heavy-handed strategy. And the king's edict allowed them to escalate their efforts. This is what resulted. They would burst into synagogues and subject the Jews to all sorts of allegations and humiliations. They would compel the Jews in Aragon to participate in theological debates that had predetermined outcomes in favor of the friars. They would force Jews to listen to conversionist sermons. And on some awful occasions, they would even induce mob violence against those who resisted their efforts. I wish I could say that these incidents were limited to Spain in the 13th century, but they weren't. The larger aim of these militant conversionist campaigns was to ensure that in Europe there were no spiritual outsiders. This was an incredibly warped way of saying, come on in. Be part of the church. Sit by the fire. Join our merry fellowship. Isn't the hospitality of God wonderful? except that isn't the hospitality of God. It goes without saying that these actions were a travesty. Maybe they had some inkling of godly motivation, but the resulting activity was godless. Now, why do I share this painful historical account with you this morning? Because I want to refute it. I want to thoroughly discredit it. And I want to discredit any contemporary equivalence that may be lurking out there. The hospitality of God is not like that. And since the hospitality of God is to be embodied in and expressed through the church, the hospitality of the church, our hospitality, should look nothing like that. So what does God's hospitality look like? Now we know from the Bible that God is like an Italian mama. He wants a big family gathered around a big banquet table. God likes big parties with colorful guests. But how does God populate this banquet table? How does he say, come on in? Those are the questions that we're going to wrestle with this morning in conversation with a very notable and sometimes puzzling text from the Old Testament. Today's story takes us into the life of a sensational prophet called Elijah. I was able to track down a photograph of him for you. <laughs> took a lot of work. Okay. Now, Elijah, as some of you may know, was sort of a crazy one. He wore a shirt made of hair, and he ate locusts and ketchup, because you need a lot of ketchup if you eat locusts. Okay. 
And more importantly, Elijah was a Tishbite. That's the balderdash word. Tishbite is sometimes translated as stranger. And here's what we're going to discover in today's story, that through Elijah the stranger, God is going to show us something about how we relate to those who are strangers to God, those who are not in God's family, so to speak. And in this discussion, some profound lessons on God's hospitality are going to surface, so fasten your safety belts. Okay? As we work through 1 Kings 17, I want to draw your attention to three things. You all know I like the number three because of the Trinity. Okay? First, when hospitality flows. Second, how God's hospitality flows. And thirdly, what enables God's hospitality to flow through us. So when, how, and what enables it to flow through us. That's what we're going to discuss today. When God's hospitality flows. At the moment of the story in 1 Kings 17, things are pretty bad. That's an understatement. In 1 Kings 16, if you read that, you'll learn that there is a rotten king on the throne in Israel. His name is Ahab. And his wife, Jezebel, is even worse. I was able to find a picture of her as well. Okay. Now, Jezebel, she was not homegrown. She was from another country in the north called Sidon. And when she married Ahab and moved to Israel, she didn't just bring her wardrobe and her glamour kit and her ladies' maids. She also brought her god. He was called Baal, B-A-A-L, Baal. Now, even worse, her spineless husband Ahab, she convinced him to legitimize Baal worship in Israel. And so for the first time ever, as you read in 1 Kings 16, there is a top down implementation of polytheism and idolatry in Israel. This false god Baal is given official recognition, and lots of Baal priests are imported into Israel, and temples and shrines to Baal are built around the country. Now, you don't need a PhD in Old Testament to know that that kind of stuff makes God angry. It upsets him. It directly violates the Ten Commandments. And it is spiritually toxic to God's people. So what's the net result of all of this? Is that the Israelites who still worship the true God in the time of Elijah, they become targets. They they get threatened by Jezebel's Baal priest and her soldiers. And a lot of them are forced into hiding. You read about that in 1 Kings chapter 18. Now God responds to this terrible situation in two ways. First, he causes a drought. You read about that in the first verse of Kings 17. And that drought leads to a famine. No water, no crops. This drought and famine are a sanction of judgment against Ahab and Jezebel for their idolatry. And second thing God does is that he sends that crazy prophet Elijah to rebuke the king and queen. Now, the king and queen, as you can imagine, don't like that very much. In fact, the queen comes to hate Elijah, and she wants his head on a platter. And that is why the prophet has to flee. But because he's fleeing during a famine, he ends up fleeing for his life at the risk of starving to death. That's the context for this story in Kings 17. Now, while it may seem that God is absent from all of this, he's actually not. God is very much at work, not just to take care of Elijah, but also to further 
his overarching hospitable purposes in the wider world. Now, St. Peter's people, here's what we need to see in this. It is in this situation, think of Elijah's circumstances, a situation of scarcity and neediness and dearth and vulnerability. It is in that situation that God is going to show his hospitality through Elijah. This is how the stage is set for the events of this story. And it's in these circumstances that Elijah, God's man, has nowhere to look except upwards. Nowhere to look except upwards. This is when God acts. This is when God acts. And it is often still when God acts. Not just to take care of us in a moment of need, but more than this, to expand his family. Now let's distill this a bit more. You already know from hearing the whole chapter read earlier that Elijah is going to be an emissary of divine hospitality to the widow in this story. He's going to bring God's favor and life and welcome into this household of the widow. But when is all of this happening? When Elijah is in a place of felt weakness, of lack, when he's fragile and at risk. When Elijah is in a place where his only confidence can be confidence in God because everything else has been stripped away. Now, to be sure, we know that the widow he goes to, she has needs. She's ready to eat sticks, as verse 12 says. She says she's going to eat sticks so that she can die. I guess that sticks are kind of like celery. You burn more chewing them than you actually get out of them. So she's going to eat sticks and die. We know that this widow has material need and spiritual neediness. And Elijah's going to bring some gifts to her. But Elijah has needs too. And so there is no place for human pride and condescension anywhere in the exchange that happens between the two of them. Here's the point. When the radical hospitality of God flows most powerfully, it should be in these types of situations, in these types of circumstances. This is when we as God's people are best positioned to be conduits of divine hospitality out into the world. Now think about what we're gleaning here. It is diametrically opposed to the tactics of the medieval friars that I mentioned in the beginning of the sermon. They operated in human strength, with human might, in a place of political power and privilege, rather than God's strength, which often works best in human weakness. God is showing a more excellent way here in the story of Elijah. Now, what does it mean when we come to terms with this point as a congregation, here and now, starting today? We need to recognize that God's invitations to people to come into his family are most effectively extended when we are deeply dependent on God, when we are abandoned to him. Now, to be in that type of position, as you know, often means that we're in situations where we either as individuals or as a community will feel out of sorts and vulnerable and unfit and even limited. And existentially, we don't like to be in places like that. And when we're in places like that, we can sometimes doubt or second guess our usefulness in taking part in God's hospitality. It's quite natural to do that. We think we don't have anything to give because we're not feeling altogether. But according to this story, that would be a huge mistake. This story, I think, invites us to second guess our second guessing. 
See, through Elijah, God is saying we need to reinterpret places of individual and communal vulnerability and lack, and even to learn to celebrate being in those places. Because those moments, and listen carefully now, those types of moments and those types of situations are a common biblical precondition for mind-blowing manifestations of divine hospitality. Occasions where God will do to us and through us things that will bring new guests to his banquet table. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Let's talk about now how God's hospitality flows. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. Now, you may not think it, but these are scandalous verses. The place to which God sends Elijah at this moment of felt need and neediness is shocking. It's not where Elijah would have expected to be. He probably thought he would be sent somewhere else in Israel with a fellow Israelite, or at least with another Israelite perhaps living in exile. But Elijah is sent to Zarephath. Now, where is Zarephath? It's just up the road from where he was. It's about as far from us as it is to Blaine, Washington. Except to Elijah and most of the Jews at his time, the people in Zarephath were weird. They were Gentiles and heathens. They were outsiders who happened to live nearby. Zarephath was a place to drive around, not drive through. Zarephath is, after all, in Sidon, beyond the Holy Land. And that's where Queen Jezebel was from. So it is the land of Israel's enemies. And to add insult to injury, Elijah gets sent to receive help from a widow, a woman, a pagan woman. That's who God says is going to take care of him. Now, you have to realize that this would have offended the deep, long-standing historical need that men have felt to feel superior to women in general. It's really offending that. That attitude, as you, as you know, is still present in this world. Imagine how pervasive it was in the ancient Near East at the time when this story was happening. What do we see in all of this? What's going on here? God is sending Elijah to the outside and to an outsider an outsider in every sense, morally, religiously, ethnically, an outsider even in the sense of violating gender conventions. That would have been scandalous to an ancient Israelite. How do we know this? I'll tell you how we know. Look at Luke 4 now if you pulled it with your finger. Because Jesus mentions this story in Luke chapter 4. And based on the reaction he gets, people try to kill him. You can tell that it is a sore subject. See, in Luke 4, Jesus cites this story from Kings to challenge the Jewish ethnocentrism and religious superiority and spiritual exclusivity that was prevalent at his time. And God's hospitality is doing the very same thing right here in Kings 17. Old prejudices die hard in humans. Now, sociologists will tell you that In a moment of crisis or struggle, when a group feels threatened, the group tends to respond through auto-segregation. It isolates and solidifies, cuts off contact from outsiders. This is all seen as a means of self-preservation. 
And it often leads to endogamy, marrying the same people from the same group, ethnocentrism, and even spiritual elitism and spiritual exclusivity. That's how groups respond when they feel threatened. If Elijah had, has, had had his way in these events, then that is what we should have expected him to want to do. If he had his choice, he would have gone and found some fellow Israelites who were hiding. They would have gotten into a cave together and commiserated on their tough lot. Solidarity, insularity, survive, preserve the group. But what is God doing here? He is countermanding that whole familiar human way of responding to this type of situation. He's doing what we rarely do when we're in a situation like that. Why is God doing this? Let me tell you. Look at verses 13 through 16 and then verse 24. On the surface, this mission, as you know, is for Elijah to get help, to receive help and food. But God has something else in mind. Elijah is being used to bring divine hospitality and welcome to the most unlikely of recipients in the context. Now, how does this unfold? Let's think about what actually happens. When Elijah gets to the widow's house, he is in a place of need. He's hungry. He's been living bird to mouth, if you read earlier in Kings. And what does he discover when he gets there? More need. He comes with needs, and she has nothing to offer but her own needs. Neither of them are equipped on their own to be the other one's patron. This is the how of God's hospitality. Look at verses 14 through 16. God is taking care of both of them. God is the one who brings life, literally food and sustenance, into this household. One person isn't really taking care of another so much. There's no human power dynamic at play here. God himself is the chief provider. Yes, people are involved, but secondarily. And so what does this mean? It means that insider-outsider distinctions are eroding. When we recognize, brothers and sisters, that the true insider-outsider distinction exists between humanity and God, then all the forces and factors that otherwise divide us begin to recede. And that is why even the worst of enemies, in a personal sense or a cultural sense, if they are truly connected to God, can become the closest of companions. Welcome to the kingdom of God. That's what happens here. In verse 24, we get a hint that this Sidonian widow, this unlikely person, is beginning to recognize that God is Lord. And that is the end goal of God's hospitality. Come on into the family. Now, what's the deeper message, deeper and profound message in all of this? God is a God of outsiders because God is a God of grace. Let me explain. God's hospitality, unlike ours sometimes, is driven by God's grace. That means that it has a predilection for people who don't measure up, who don't have the right religious ideas, who are morally deficient, who haven't made all the right decisions in their life, who maybe haven't amounted to much, who are needy, vulnerable, and broken. And that is how it has been, brothers and sisters, from the beginning with God. Remember the Old Testament? You've been reading it recently. When God extends his divine hospitality to the Hebrew people, 
the Israelites, the Jews. What's their state of existence? Class, do you remember the story in Exodus? The Jews were a conquered people, enslaved, pathetic, and pitiful, existing in ignorance of God, morally decrepit, spiritually confused. That's how God's hospitality finds them. When God looks at the Hebrew people in the Old Testament, he doesn't look at them and say, my, what an accomplished people you are. What good religious and moral people you are. You have so many virtues. <laughs> Wrong answer. God says no such thing. To the contrary, he sort of gives them a backhanded compliment as you read in Deuteronomy 7. He says, I love you very much, but not because of anything you are or anything you've done. That's grace. Remember that. Someone, next time someone says to you, they're not good enough to come to church. God's grace is at the center of gospel hospitality. But it is totally absent from Christian religion. And Christian religion is what I depicted when I started. What's Christian religion? Let me unpack this briefly for you. Christian religion can lurk in a lot of churches. And how do you know it? Because it does not gravitate towards the types of people that God is always seeking in the Old Testament. And it doesn't do hospitality God's way. Christian religion is not really interested with love in seeking outsiders, however they may be defined in a particular moment in history. Christian religion will not send you to the ends of the earth to introduce God. And in fact, it won't even send you to the downtown east side or to the prisons outside of Vancouver, or to the HIV care unit at St. Pete's, Dr. Pete's. Why? Why won't Christian religion do that? Because Christian religion, my friends, is like all varieties of human religion, including secularism, which I count as a religion, and we can talk about that afterwards if you'd like. Christian religion, like religion in general, is premised on what we can do. It revolves around our potential and our achievements. In the Christian form, this means that we're always aiming to kind of win God's favor. Now, at, a, at the core, Christian religion is really driven by a desire to stand on our own two feet, to self-justify, to take care of ourselves. And it's in doing that that Christian religion seeks to give us a sense of surety, of divine approval, or a sense of being a successful person. You see, Christian religion is more interested in us our preferences, our biases, our comfort zones, our need to grasp a sense of significance. It's more interested in all of that than in true surrender to God and embracing his kingdom. This is what the false god of Christian religion would say if he was here. He would say, well done, revel. You needed a bit of help from me, but otherwise you're quite fit and impressive. Would you mind telling me how you attain such a desirable position in life? That's Christian religion. And it makes no room for the hospitality of God. I can think of no better illustration this morning for the mutation of authentic Christian hospitality into the ugliness of Christian religion than the story that's depicted in the film Dead Man Walking. It's about the ministry of Sister Helen Prajan. And she is a truly kind-hearted nun, and she is someone who understands God's hospitality. 
Now, in her life, this was in the 90s, I think, she finds herself visiting a man on death row. He's slated for lethal injection because he murdered a teenage couple. Now, Helen visits this man to minister to him, to listen to him, to pray for him, because Helen is someone who believes, and I quote her here, that a person is more than the worst thing they've ever done. Now, how do some of the so-called Christians that know about her work with this man, how do they react? When they learn what she's doing, they show her disdain. They tell her it's unchristian. They suggest that her act of kindness and hospitality angers God, that it's morally reprehensible. That's Christian religion. It looks at the outsider and it searches for some reason to say, you shouldn't be inside here with us. Stay out. This is a private club. We don't serve your type in here. That's what Christian religion says. And why does it do that? Because it does not adequately recognize the role of grace and the circumstances of yours truly. It overcredits the self and undercredits God. And that attitude, as you know, does not nurture gospel hospitality. Gospel hospitality is entirely different. It takes its cue from God, and I want to describe it and kind of apply it for us today in three ways. Number one, gospel hospitality, which is what we see here in Kings 17, does not seek and search for people who have it together. It knows that no such people actually exist. Because when we stand next to God, we're all outsiders. Ain't none of us born in the Holy Land, as they say where I'm from. <laughs> Just measure your life against Jesus if you need a reminder of this. Number two, gospel hospitality, it's going to be a challenge, right? Does not fixate solely on people who are our equivalents in social, economic, racial, or national terms. In fact, it subverts the bourgeoisie tendency to connect and invest primarily in relationships with people that are of equal or greater status. It subverts that. It disrupts the temptation that middle-class people sometimes experience to build middle-class churches. Gospel hospitality saves us from being middle-class in spirit because we're called to be poor in spirit. To be in the kingdom of God and to practice gospel hospitality means to know that every insider, starting with you and me, used to be an outsider. That will generate a spirituality that will guard us from being in educational terms or economic terms or cultural terms or professional terms. It will guard us from being birds of a feather that flock together. We don't want a church of clones, and God certainly does. And the third thing, gospel hospitality does not yawn. <sighs> it's not apathetic. It doesn't get bogged down by disinterest and malaise towards the pressing need that every human being has for the grace of God. We'll speak very carefully here because I think this exhortation is especially important for St. Peter's. Here in Vancouver, as you all know, we pride ourselves on being very progressive. So we don't like to think in terms of Jew and Gentile. 
We're beyond that. We like diversity in principle. We're glad that God sent Elijah to Sidon and to a woman. Good for you, God. God is progressive. But here's the thing. Those sensibilities do not often translate into proactive concern for the welfare of the people around us. Truth be told, we can't always be bothered. We don't have a problem going to Sidon. We're all about Sidon and diversity. We have a problem going. Period. Our struggles with indifference and apathy. And God has something to say about this. In the Old Testament, those who do not love God with passion and commitment and with a desire to be obedient to God, they are said to hate God. Kind of a strong word. It's not because they feel hatred towards him. They don't have the emotion of hatred. But it's simply because according to the Bible, to be lackluster towards God is the same thing as hating him. That's what the Hebrew means. So hatred in this sense is not an emotion as much as an objective state of being. And in a very same manner, to be lackluster and apathetic to the huge need for God's grace that exists in this city, to be that way is basically to hate this city, according to the thinking of the Old Testament, according to God. And that, as you can guess, is not gospel hospitality. So what's the temperature of our hospitality? It's a good question to ask ourselves every few months. This is how hospitality works according to this Elijah story. And what you see at the end is that a new person enters the family of God. At the beginning of the chapter, she's a Sidonian woman. But at the end of the chapter, she's beginning to realize that she is a child of God. And this leads me to my third and final point. What enables that hospitality to flow through us? How does what God, make, God makes Elijah do something in this story? How does that begin to flow out of us? How does it become second nature in us? Look at verses 17 through 22 with me. Another calamity strikes. The widow's son gets sick and the child dies. Like many people in a moment of crisis like that, she blames heaven. Verse 18. She thinks that God struck down her son. She thinks that God's basic attitude to her because of some sinfulness in her life is an attitude of hostility and malice. In verse 20, Elijah seems to kind of entertain that same perspective. But they're both wrong. This is why God raises the child, which is what we read about in verse 22 and 23. The resurrection of this child, this is what the commentators say, is a vindication of God. It means that God did not strike down this child as some sort of punishment for sin in a malicious way. That's what it's saying. Now this great insight, this epiphany, comes to the fore in a peculiar ritual that we read about in verse 21. Now I'm sure you're wondering about that from the time Ivan read the passage. What's going on here? Let me try to explain this. Elijah stretches himself out over the boy. Now, the Hebrew word here, madad, sounds like my dad, madad, right? It literally means to measure. As that word is used in the Old Testament, it can refer to measuring out death or life to a person. 
And that is exactly what's happening here. Stretching out over this boy, super close to him, three times, Elijah is basically saying, take me. Measure out my life to him, God. Take me instead. And how does God respond? He gives life back to the boy. The significance of this is huge. God is confirming at this moment the attitude and desire that Elijah, that are in Elijah, which is a hatred of death and a profound sorrow towards the reality of death. Why is God doing this? Why is he saying yes to this desire? Because it, it hits the nail on God's own desire. God also opposes death. God also desires to give life. That's what gets God fired up, in fact. Everything in this story, from the provision of food to the raising of the boy, is screaming this point. And what it's saying is that God is not the proactive cause of our death in some malicious way. Rather, God wants to be known as the one who rescues us from death, who brings life out of death. And this is the same thing that God says, except hugely amplified on the cross of Christ. Three times Elijah says, let me take the boy's death. But Jesus Christ does so much more than that. For three days, he actually entered into death, the death that is coming to every one of us in this broken world, unless God intervenes. And the cross is that intervention. So if you think God wants your death, you're wrong. God wants your life. And he wants you to be at that banquet table for all eternity. Now some of you have a question in your mind. I know that. This does not mean that we will not all experience bodily death in this present age. But it does mean that death is not the last word. And that is good news. There's more. C.S. Lewis puts this so well when he says, to enter heaven is to become more human than you ever succeeded in being on earth. The more that awaits is too wonderful to imagine sometimes. But whatever difficult circumstances may eventually contribute to our bodily death, when God pours life back into us, just like he did with this child, all those painful memories will fade. This is the message of the cross of Christ. This is what God is proclaiming, the very thing that he is affirming in 1 Kings 17. This desire is the heartbeat of heaven's hospitality. Now, some of you are thinking, well, what does that have to do with enabling God's hospitality to flow through us? What are you talking about, Pastor? I'll tell you, it has everything to do with it. When we probe, if we're honest with ourselves, into our failure to do hospitality God's way, we will find at least one common root, the fear of death. This fear isn't always a conscious fear, but it's a fear that's deeply rooted into our fiber. It's implicit in our existence as humans. At certain times, it can come up to the top and wrench our emotions, and we feel panic. Now, that deep fear can manifest in a variety of ways. If you think that your bodily death is the end, then you're going to probably live in a way that centers on maximizing your personal happiness. You're going to build a life that centers on avoiding things and people 
that are going to detract from the most gratifying and pleasurable way of life. You're going to stay away from outsiders who might not make a positive contribution to your ambitions and goals. You're going to grasp what you think is necessary to have the best present possible life. And you're going to flee any position of vulnerability or neediness. Listen carefully to this. People who fear death easily live life for themselves. But people who don't fear death are better able to live life for others and to show radical hospitality God style because they know that this life isn't all there is and that there is a better party to come and through Christ we have all been invited. Dearly beloved, as you get this, as this melts your hearts, you will change. When you realize that Christ stretched out his body over you, that he breathes life into your otherwise perishing body for all eternity, when you get that, you will never be able to look back at your neighbors and your colleagues and all the other people in this city with a yawn with apathy and with indifference and disinterest. No, no, no. Your attitude will change towards others and your whole way of thinking about outsiders will get reconfigured. And you know what? It won't just be a positive theory, the right values. It will turn into decisive action. And you will increasingly discover, as I am finally beginning to in my life, that instead of it being impossible to practice God-style hospitality. It will actually be impossible not to practice it. It will flow from you. It will become instinctual. And it will flow not begrudgingly, but with gratitude and joy, even if it's inconvenient and costly at times, because you will know that whatever cost you sustain in showing this type of hospitality, it is infinitely smaller than the sacrifice God made to say to all of us, come on in. Do you see this? You want to see personal and social and cultural renewal in Vancouver? That's our vision here at St. Peter's. Marvel at this hospitality. Remember that Jesus stretched over you and clung to you to rectify the brokenness and the mess and the death that is innate in all of us. So today, can you hear God saying to you, come on in? If so, then get into this type of hospitality. Let's stir it up in one another, and let's realize that when we do, thousands will be changed. May it please the Lord. There will be an everlasting party, and it will be epic, but the pregame starts now.